Good morning, friends. Christ is risen. Pastor, I forgot. What am I supposed to do now? It's been too long. As Rachel said, we were, Bonnie and myself and our kids, we were on sabbatical. So, so many of you, I'm looking out, and I don't know you. And uh, now we have an opportunity over, you know, the next decade or so to get to know one another. But my name is Jonathan, and I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And we were afforded uh, an opportunity to go on sabbatical after being here at Antioch, now New Life Midtown, for seven years. Y'all, time flies when you're having fun, but also when you're not having fun. Time just flies. That's the thing. (laughs) And uh, as Rachel was giving um, the, the kids' ministry testimony, it just reminded me of something really cute and funny. Our kids, who are five and three, daughter's five, son is three, have been role-playing. Well, my son does whatever my daughter makes him do. And uh, they've been role-playing because that's what she's been making him do. And she's been saying, okay, I'm going to be God and you're going to be Jesus. (laughs) And I'm going to send you down into the world and you're going to die, but it's okay. I'll bring you back to life. (laughs) But it's because God the Father loves these people so much every day. And uh, that's pretty amazing. I mean, I didn't teach her the story that way. Um, I know the story a little better than that, but it's pretty amazing that she's got all of that. And it's a testimony to multiple things. One large part is children's ministry. All these kids pick up things that, you know, for better and for worse, these kids pick up things. So let's get them in there and let's get as many of your voices in there as Rachel can handle. Uh, it, it is good to be back. Uh, just one quick word on sabbatical. It was such a gift. So thank you for thank you to Pastor Jade and to all the staff for making it possible. And thank you to the congregation because our last Sunday, you guys uh, sent us off with many cards. Thank you cards. It was a day that uh, somebody had organized to celebrate us as pastors, and so it was really good having a bunch of notes as we left saying how much we were loved. So that way we didn't have to wonder the whole time if when we got back what you were going to think about us and would there be a space here. So that was really a gift to us. Thank you all for keeping space for us while we were gone. But man, it seems like things have been wonderful here at Midtown. So we're excited to be back. And uh, this does feel a little odd. I'm not going to lie, being up here in front of you guys to speak today. But I think I have a word from the Lord. I don't know that I had a word from the Lord until sometime on Friday, but uh, sometime this weekend, things really started to click inside of me. And I will tell you, today is Joy Sunday, Gaudet Sunday, as the liturgical tradition says. And I want to give you a fair warning. Some of you probably assumed this was going to be coming, this kind of warning. This message is not going to start very joyful. But I promise you, if you hang with me, the gospel at the end of this message will be better than any of us could have asked or imagined. Not because I'm fabricating or making things up, but because the God that we have come this morning to worship is better than we could have asked or imagined. I heard a story this week about a famous theologian named uh, Stanley Harawas, who's retired from Duke Divinity School. And Stanley received, he's a Methodist, received an invitation to preach at an Anglican church in Edinburgh, Scotland, some number of years ago. And it was one of these ancient cathedrals where to preach, he had to go up the stairs off, you know, to stage right side. And as he's climbing these stairs as an old man, he hears a behind him. 
and he looks, and the priest has shut a door behind him as he's going up. And if you know anything about Stanley Powerwas, he inserts a four-letter word in this sentence and says, what in the world are you doing? And the priest looks up to Stanley and says, we like to lock our preachers in until they give us the gospel. So this morning, this is a true story, by the way. So if you hang with me to the end, I promise I'm going to give you the gospel, the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Today is going to be, in some ways, a part two to Pastor Jade's message last week. We're going to be talking about John the Baptist. And this is not always the case on week three of Advent. But this year, John the Baptist gets two weeks. He got last week, and John gets this week as well. So if you're unfamiliar with who John the Baptist is, John is Jesus' cousin, who in many ways was born for the purpose of preparing the way for the Messiah, who of course is Jesus of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, whose life we are celebrating. And as we move into Christmas and Christmas tide, that is the center of all that we are doing in the coming weeks. And so today, we're going to read a story about John the Baptist, John the prophet, as John is nearing the end of his life in prison. And so that doesn't sound very joyful, and that part of it is not. So if you're with me, let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 11, and let's hear a little bit about what is happening with John as he's in prison. Matthew chapter 11, starting with verse 2, we're going to read through verse 11. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, they were leaving to take this message, what Jesus has just said, back to John in prison. Jesus, knowing that they will overhear purposely, then says the following. He began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in the king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to you, Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we receive this text on a Sunday that is all about joy. And we trust that you have a word for us. Whether some in this place find themselves in a figurative prison or if they are already rejoicing, We trust that you have the gospel for us today, that you have good news, that you have healing for us, that you have comfort for us, that you have strength for us. So I pray that in the proclamation of the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ today, that our ears would be open and that my mouth would be cleansed. Lord, let us hear your words 
and let them pierce our hearts and bring forth abundant life. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Doubt is a funny thing. We find that John the Baptist is doubting. He has questions. He is unsure, uncertain about the very one his life was designed to usher into the world. John the Baptist is probably the last person in all of Scripture that you or I would assume would be doubting. And I think there are a number of reasons and a number of things we're going to get into here. But one of the reasons that John and we doubt is because we're humans who live with expectations. That it is inhuman to live without any kind of expectations. So think about this, just as a a, a mini-thought experiment. If I walked up to you, Greg, this morning, and I said, hey man, here's an envelope with $100,000. I just want to give this to you. Greg was not expecting this. Greg would hopefully be grateful and thankful, and now Greg has $100,000 that he didn't have when he walked in that he didn't do anything for. But if I give Greg the lotto ticket that someone just won in California a few weeks ago for hundreds of millions of dollars, and tomorrow morning Greg wakes up and finds that that lotto ticket won him $300 million, and I show up at Greg's house tomorrow afternoon and knock on the door, and I say, hey, man, actually, I was just going to give you $100,000. The rest of it's mine. Greg might not be as excited as he was in the first scenario. But here's the point. In both scenarios, Greg walks away with $100,000 he did nothing for. The only difference was his expectations. Our expectations about a thing frame our experience almost as much as what happens to us. And many of us have expectations about life, about ourselves, about other people, about God, about what it is to live the Christian life, that are like the second scenario. They keep leading us to disappointment, even though in the end, we are coming out so much better for nothing that we have done. So this morning, I want to talk about our expectations. I want to talk about doubt. I want to talk about disappointment and disillusionment, because if it happened to John the Baptist... It can and it will happen to you and I. And a word for those of us in the room who are feeling like you're in a great place today. Two things, why you should pay attention. This is my argument to why you should listen to me for the next 20 minutes, okay? (laughs) Number one, because you will or someone close to you will experience some form of doubt or disillusionment or despair or disappointment in the future. Also... This is the one that I think is more subtle and probably more true for all of us. If you grew up in the church, you probably inherently received some kind of ideology that said that doubt is something that will get you ostracized from God. Maybe it was never explicitly preached that way, but many of us grew up in churches or with people where somehow that message was absorbed into us. And you might not be aware that you have frustrations or anger or disappointment toward God because you've been so conditioned 
to just resist anything that smells, thinks, sounds, or feels like doubt or disappointment or disillusionment. And here's what I am certain of. If we don't bring those things to the Lord, eventually they turn into bitterness, unforgiveness, and resentment. And I think the word of the Lord for us today, I'm I'm already getting to some good stuff, okay? There's going to be more, but some good stuff. The word of the Lord for us today is that God wants us to not be afraid to bring those things into the light because he desires to heal them. He desires to touch us so that our eyes will be able to see that he's actually far better than we've ever asked or imagined. So, something about the deeds of the Messiah caused John to doubt, or maybe if doubt feels like a strong word to you, second guess, or just really want to be sure. And think about this, John's whole life and the history of prophecy leading up to his life was that this man, John, was born for the sole purpose of ushering in the Messiah who is going to change all things. And John finds himself in a prison, the end of his life, for confronting Herod about sin. And John is here, and there was a word spoken, I can't remember if it was Bonnie or Seth or Pastor Jade earlier, but somebody mentioned something about loneliness And there is something about isolation and loneliness that gives space for these deep, dark things within us and within our soul to find light that they might not would have when John was busy baptizing and preaching in the wilderness. But now John is finding himself in prison with seemingly no purpose left. He's done all that he can do. His job is now behind him, and he's handed the baton over to Jesus in some metaphorical sense. And he's wondering, man, this sure did not turn out like I thought it was. On a number of levels, maybe number one, John's going, I heard about the deeds of the Messiah, and I've seen them with my own two eyes. What, was the, what were the things Jesus was doing? Jesus is healing blind eyes and raising little girls and Lazarus from the dead. And he's setting those who have been oppressed by demons free. Jesus is healing lepers. He's forgiving sins. And John is thinking, man, it sure takes a lot of power to do those things. And yet I'm still in prison. Jesus, if you have all this power, why am I still here? Why am I still in prison? Maybe. This is one of the things John is wondering about. Also, I wonder if something in John is assuming maybe he missed the mark. Like, it it wasn't supposed to end this way. That the Messiah is the one who was going to come and restore Israel to power. And so when John went into the courts of Herod and proclaimed, well, I don't know if he went into the courts of Herod, but when he proclaimed, Herod, you're living in sin, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, He thought Jesus was going to have his back. And now, presumably, John's in prison and not sure if Jesus actually has his back. Have you ever been in a place where you found yourself in circumstances that were more difficult because you did what was faithful to Jesus? There is a whole tradition of the martyrs throughout Christian history who that is their story. And many of us, if we ever experience anything like that, it will be on a very minor scale. But the Christian faith has a whole tradition 
of martyrs whose lives are given away for the cause of faithfully following Jesus Christ. Also, the text seems to suggest that it was what Jesus was doing, not just what he wasn't doing. John heard about the deeds of the Messiah, and it caused him to doubt. Well, what were these deeds? I mentioned just a moment ago, forgiving sins, healing blind eyes, unstopping ears, purifying lepers, and so on and so on. Many of us can quote dozens of Jesus' miracles, but here's the thing. John's expectations were that of religious and social and political change. So hear me. Some of you are not going to like what I'm saying, but hear this. John's looking at the miracles and going, great, Jesus, but it just isn't enough. It's just not substantial enough. Like, yes, certainly for those who were healed, those few individuals. But you got to understand, this is the Messiah. They have been waiting for thousands of years for the Messiah to come. And yes, there are a few dozens, maybe a few hundred of people whose quality of life is now certainly better. But as my friend Chris Green said just the other day, so what that your eyes are opened if all you can see and hear is the oppression of Rome? Then at the end of the day, what has really changed? Because John's expectations were that Jesus was coming to be the Messiah to restore the people of Israel to power to overthrow the powers of Rome. And if you've been in church for any length of time, you've heard this. You hear it around Easter, we hear it on Palm Sunday, and we hear it in Advent. And I want us to take pause, because we likely don't have those same expectations of God. But we have all kinds of varieties of expectations about God. And I want to suggest to us this morning that if we don't give voice to those things, that ultimately it poisons us. Not for the sake of glorifying doubt. This is not about glorifying doubt or glorifying disappointment. You know, there are certain corners of the Christian tradition right now that are in some ways, you know, making it sexy to deconstruct and to not believe any of it. That's not what I'm suggesting. But the things that are deep inside of us that are frustrated, that wish it were different, why are we afraid to bring those things to God? What are we afraid he's going to do to us? John had good reason to question Jesus. Everything he had expected of the Messiah was either missing or incomplete. Think about that. Everything that John had expected of the Messiah, I was reading in commentaries this week, and multiple commentaries noted that there was no good reason for John or anyone in the first century to think that the Messiah would come primarily as a healer. Now we, 2,000 years later, we've read the Gospels over and over and over again, and we've read the stories, and we trust and we know that Jesus is a healer. But to them, healing was at best a a tangent of what the Messiah was going to do. The Messiah was going to be a warrior, a political figure, a society-changing kind of person. And so the Messiah comes and is doing all these other things. And it's like, okay, I guess that's fine. But then now John is in prison. He's like, okay, it seems like maybe we're nearing the end. 
And this is all he's doing. I don't know that he's going to get to those other things. John had good reason to doubt, to ask this question. But hear this. John held doubt in tension with faith. John asked Jesus, are you the one? If John thought Jesus was actually a con man, you don't walk up to a thief or a con man and go, hey man, are you a thief? Are you a con man? There was something deep in John that trusted Jesus. There was something in John that was still hopeful, that John had seen too much. And maybe he was a little unsure, but deep down John knew this is a good man. He's gracious. The hand of God is on him. Maybe he's not the Messiah, but he'll tell me, I trust Jesus enough. And John models for us that we can doubt, that we can have disappointments with God, and we can do it faithfully. We can do it in faith. You don't have to turn your back on God or on church or on the people of God to have real questions and real concerns. Advent gives voice to our experience that God's work often seems too slow, too small, and happens in all the wrong places. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like John in prison hearing Jesus is healing all these other people who have never done and likely never will do anything in return for Jesus? And here am I, the one who's given everything for you, and I'm going to rot in prison? That'll draw some stuff out of you. When what you've been asking God for, he seems to freely give to someone else. Have you ever been in that spot? Be honest. I have. I have. That's not an easy place to be. And Advent gives voice to that. Advent gives voice that the work of God seems insubstantial at times. It seems too slow. God, why? Why are we still in this mess? And what good you do do seems to be to people who are, let's just say, in the wrong places. So here we are in week three of Advent as we approach Christmas. And Chris also has this quote, and we're going to transition here in just a moment. We're going to read a passage from Isaiah. But Chris said, Advent is not about waiting on God to come, but about waiting on the God who has already come to fulfill his promises. And so in many ways, this is where we find ourselves today. God has come. As Pastor Jay said in week one of Advent, God is coming to us all the time. Every day, God is coming to us. And as Christians, we trust that God is one day going to come again and restore all things and make all things new. So we're not just waiting on the one coming, the second coming of God, if you will, but we're waiting on the God who is come and who is present to us in the Holy Spirit to fulfill all of his promises. So how does God fulfill his promises? And where does that work tend to take place? I want us now to turn to Isaiah chapter 35. This is a beautiful, joyful chapter. So guys, we're starting to turn back to joy. Amen, if you're with me. If you're here this far, you're going to really love the rest of this. That was the hard stuff, okay? Here we go. Chapter 35, Isaiah. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. 
like the crocus. By the way, full disclosure, I had no idea what a crocus is. But it's a beautiful pink and purple flower, okay? The crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance. He will come with retribution. And he will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow, and a highway will be there. Well, that came out of nowhere. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will, know, will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor will any ravenous beast. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. Everybody just get out your last sigh right now. Oh, man. See, there ain't going to be no more of that. That's about to be done, y'all. No more sighing. So this Isaiah passage here in the beginning talks about the wilderness and the desert or the parched land. The parched land and the, the desert is in many ways metaphorical for what Pastor Jay talked about last week. It's the barrenness, the place lacking in resource, the place of oftentimes loneliness and feeling distant not only from God but from being able to relate to other people. Many of us are used to at least hearing about this desert, wildernessy kind of place. But if you actually think about a wilderness, think about Daniel Boone and Davy Crockett and Lewis and Clark and their westward path through America. The wilderness is actually not necessarily that place. It's the uncharted place. It's not necessarily the place where there is no resource. It's the place where there are resources and you're not actually sure the direction of where to go. God, there are many options. There are many things happening all around me. There are many things I could be giving my life and my time to, but I have no direction because it's uncharted territory. So here in this Isaiah 35 passage, we have all of this beauty springing up in the desert and we have a highway coming into the wilderness, the uncharted place. So the first question to ask, which I've just answered for you, by the way, is where does all this beautiful work of God happen? It doesn't happen in the city. It doesn't happen in the place where we're comfortable, where life as usual is pretty good, pretty great. I'm not saying God is not in those places. But the work of God throughout the book of Isaiah tends to come in the places where we feel lonely and ostracized and confused and overwhelmed and dry and barren. That's the place. That's the place where the springs spring up 
in the desert. That's where the crocus blooms. I don't know where crocuses actually bloom, but in Isaiah, they bloom out in the wilderness. (laughs) Somebody can Google that and get back to me later. So the first thing here that we learn from Isaiah is that more often than not, God's work happens in the places we'd rather not be. God's work happens in the places that we most quickly want to leave. That's not necessarily a bad thing. It just means we're human. And what I want to encourage you with this morning is open your eyes in those places. Pay attention. Look around. Is there a little bud? You know, practice uh, this morning... Pastor Jade led us for, I think, the third or fourth week in a row in our pre-service meeting in a practice of highlighting, calling out the good things in other people who are serving that we see. And it occurred to me as we were doing that, that that is exactly what Advent is about. It is about learning to look to places and people that we often would overlook or that we assume we know and look for the activity of God there. It's about learning not just to look for God in the beautiful, lush gardens of our life, but can we learn to look for God in the deserts of our lives? Can we learn to look for the activity of God as we're traveling along a long highway in the middle of the wilderness? And we have no earthly idea where we're going. Can we learn to pay attention and to look for the work of God in those places. And then, as I said, as we were reading, this highway just seems to appear out of nowhere. So where does the activity of God happen? Most often, it happens in the places we want to be quick to leave. His spring of water comes in the parched land. His beautiful crocus comes in the barren place. The places that God meets us, we want to leave, and how often does it happen? What we want so desperately is for God to send a helicopter right to the middle of the wilderness and take us to the metaphorical New Jerusalem. God, rescue me. Get me out of this place as quickly as possible. God is no less at work, but how he's at work couldn't be more different from that. Most of the time, what does God do? He strengthens the feeble hands and knees, and provides a highway. God strengthens you. He comes and he lifts you up and he provides a highway and he says, come let us walk together. Come let us walk together. We're going to get out of this, but you do have to actually walk. You do have to walk. Don't worry. I'm going to strengthen your knees. I'm going to strengthen your hands, but no helicopter is coming. Because this is the place where I'm at work. This is the place of beauty. You can't see it yet because your eyes are blinded. But I'm about to heal your eyes. And you're going to start to see that there is beauty actually in the desert and in the wilderness. And that there is something beautiful about traveling with me even when you don't know where we're going. This is the way so often that God works in our lives. And we wish it weren't so. If we're honest guys, we want the heavenly helicopter to come take us to glory land. This is what we want. And I'm here to talk to you this morning about your expectations. 
And the message this morning is not lower your expectations. It's have your expectations, but recognize you have them, and you have to have them because you're a human being following and living with a divine being. But recognize that God is going to upend almost all of your expectations. And the good news is that in the end, he will prove to be better than every single one of them. How are we changed? How do we come to see God's promises fulfilled? How do we come to see at all as we walk on this highway with our God? In the last verse of Isaiah 35, Seth, if you would come and the community attendants would get ready. The last verse here, verse 10. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Did you catch what Isaiah says here about joy? Joy and gladness will overtake them. So many times we have expected or been taught that we have to make this joy happen. That joy is there, you have to grab it by the horns. But it seems that this passage is so much more gracious and slow. And the gospel here, oh, Aaron, not Seth, by the way. Sorry, this is Aaron, not Seth. I just realized I called Seth and Aaron came. My bad on that. But so often, here's the way it happens. We come to God, we come in doubt, we come in disappointment, we come with frustration, and we keep coming. And we keep coming. And we keep walking. And our knees and our feet and our hands slowly are strengthened and strengthened a little more and strengthened a little more. And before we know it, joy and gladness have overtaken the doom and gloom of our lives. We might still be walking on the highway. All around us might still look like wilderness or look like desert. But there are these little crocus bulbs that now we're able to see that we couldn't have seen before. We don't have to go back there now, but going back to the passage of, in Matthew, you guys can come forward, communion attendants. Going back to the Matthew passage, do you remember what Jesus' response to John was through his disciples? Blessed are those who do not stumble or are not offended in me. How do we doubt, how do we have disappointment and have it faithfully? Do it without being offended. And the way to not, the difference is in posture. When we're offended, we are cut off. We don't want to hear anything else. But the way that John doubts in faith, the way John holds his questions before God, is with an open ear bent toward him. God, this looks like a hot mess, but I'm giving you the last word. John refuses to have the last word himself, so he sends his disciples. Think about what Jesus then says. As John's disciples are leaving to go back, he says, John is the greatest one ever born among women. If John had held his questions, held his uncertainties, held all those things in and refused to share them and bring them to Jesus, he never would have heard Jesus' affirming word. Jesus brought an affirming word, knowing John's disciples are there, that they're going to hear 
that Jesus praises John in his darkest moment. And this is the word for some of you today, that you've been scared. I've seen too much. I shouldn't, I shouldn't wonder. Or I should be better off than I am right now. I should be stronger. My feet and my knees shouldn't be so weak walking with the Lord. I should be further on this journey. But I'm not. And what you're afraid is that God's going to say, yeah, get it together. But like he said to John's disciples to relay the message to John, no one has been born greater. And so to you, Jesus is proud of you. In John's darkest moment, Jesus praises him in public. What is Jesus saying about you in your darkest moment? I think the gospel here this morning is that in your weakness, in your shame, in your pain, in your confusion, in your exhaustion, in your questions, if you're in the fourth quarter of your life wondering, did I miss it? If you're nearing the end thinking, I thought it would have looked a lot different. I thought my impact would have been more. Golly, I wish all my kids were serving the Lord. Where did I fail? Whatever your questions, whatever your frustrations, whatever your concerns, here's the word of the Lord. Jesus loves you, and behind your back, he praises you. He affirms you. Jesus is not disappointed with you. And the second word is, let him strengthen your feeble knees and your feeble hands to keep walking. Stand with me. Let's prepare our hearts to come to the table. As we come this morning, this isn't quite a highway, but I want you to imagine that as you are leaving your seat, even if it's just a few steps to the front, that you are walking the highway and that this is a little image of what all of life is about. Walking the highway with God, with the people of God, as he's opening your eyes, opening your ears, strengthening your knees, strengthening your feet, and transforming you and all that is around you, even when you don't see it. And this is what we believe happens here at the table. We believe that this seemingly measly little cracker and little drop of juice In it, God is doing something far more than we are aware of or we could ever ask or imagine. The Christian life is one of imagination. It's not of all black and white facts and figures. It's walking with a mysterious God who we trust is better because we've known what he's done in the past. So as you come to the table of the Lord today, first I will say the elements are gluten-free for those who need gluten-free. But come slowly and come imagining that you are walking on this highway with God and with his people. Come out the left side of your rows. Come to the table of the Lord. Go back to your uh, seats and then we will partake together.